Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. As we do here at Intentional Conversations, you know I always like to make sure that before I give our guest co-host an opportunity to greet you all, I want you to know a little bit more about them. So I'm going to read the official bio of our guest co-host today, and then I will allow her to come and be in conversation with, with, with each of us. And I know that it's going to be a really um, thought-provoking conversation, so I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, Rahime. Ramazani is a multi-ethnic, neurodiverse, visibly identifiable Muslim American woman and a diversity, equity, and inclusion and intercultural practitioner. She founded her DEI business in order to help organizations incorporate Muslims and considerations of religious identity into their existing DEI efforts comprehensively spanning the intrapersonal, interpersonal, and systemic implications of the work. Rahime leverages her lived experiences at the intersection of multiple marginalized and privileged identities, a master's degree in intercultural communication, and years of professional DEI experience to address the often uncomfortable, but nonetheless essential work of making our spaces inclusive and equitable for all. And so I want you to take to the chat, find those emojis, find those reactions, whatever way that feels appropriate for you. But I would love for you to, in your own way, help me to welcome our guest co-host today to let her know how much we appreciate her being here to share with us. Again, Rahime, Ramazani, and um, I am so excited. Ramazani, Ramazani, we practice this, we practice this. But I am so oh, thank excited. you so much. I am so excited to have um, her here today. And so I'm going to stop sharing so that you can you can see both of us oh. as we are going to be in conversation with each other. And welcome, my friend. Thank you for accepting our invitation. And I want to give you a chance to greet this audience in your own way. But I will tell you, we do have kind of a special way in which we invite our guest co-host to do that. And that is by sharing something that we would not know about you from mm. reading your bio, or maybe mm. even from looking at your professional profile on mm. LinkedIn. And sometimes our guests will find it appropriate to do this in kind of a storytelling manner. Mm. So whatever's comfortable for you, we want to learn more about you. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Nika. Hello, everyone, wherever you are in the world, or if you're listening to the playback. Thank you so much for investing your time in this conversation. I very much hope that it is helpful to you and your work in your life in some way. Um, hello as well for myself. My name is Rahimia Ramazani. I use she, her pronouns. Um, as Nika very kindly introduced me, I'm a DEI and intercultural practitioner. Thank you all so much for your welcomes in the comments. I really do appreciate it. Um, it is so such a pleasure also to be here and to share this space with you all. Uh, something about myself that I guess you wouldn't see, and I am pretty vocal on social media. Uh, I do really genuinely enjoy creating content, but especially around the subject area that I talk about is very much a special interest for me. Obviously, I've like crafted my whole life and career around DEI, uh, but something I don't talk too, too much about um, on any of these other platforms is that uh, even though I do say very openly that I am multi-ethnic, I am the child of one person who is an immigrant and one person who is not an immigrant. And I am still very much in search. So if anyone knows a terminology for this, um, I'm still very much in search of language around someone who has one immigrant parent and one non-immigrant parent, because that is very, yeah, I know, right? Like you would think like, this is not like a super unique, like there's immigrants who've married and or had children with married or not with non-immigrants before. It's not like a revolutionary concept, but I really have not. I really, anyway, someone tell me, someone has to have this answer. Otherwise I'm going to make no. something up and call like claim credit. But the idea being is that it's not just a matter like what I feel like makes it more of a niche conversation within like yeah. multi-ethnic, multi-racial, biracial, whatever you want to yeah. call it, like mixed conversations is that Yes, there are very different cultural backgrounds, and that's honestly how I got my start in the intercultural communication field, which is where I learned in grad school about the existence of diversity, equity, inclusion at all, and, you know, went from there. I really love mixing the 
field of DEI and intercultural communication, I really do tr- strongly feel they have so much to offer each other. Yeah. However, um, so having a multi-ethnic identity, my father is an Iranian immigrant, my mother is, you know, white, of mixed European heritage, <laughs> right? Um, and those are completely different ethnic cultures, if you will, the way they resolve conflict, the way they communicate just in general, the way they communicate respect, nonverbal versus direct, uh, you know, sorry, nonverbal communication, direct versus indirect communication, on and on and on. All these different things are so different. But then you add on on top of that, there's like this mix within the same household of especially like growing up your growing up years that as a child, you're getting different messaging that's very much through the lens of someone who's an immigrant and especially a person of color immigrant. Um, And then also, you know, having a white mother who is also going to have a very different cultural standpoint, not just from like an ethnicity racial standpoint, but also just from the fact (laughs) that like she and her family and, you know, my family obviously by default, have been here for a very, very, very long time. So it's very different. Honestly, like, please, someone I'm, I've been trying to find, <laughs> not the first time I brought it up in DI spaces, like someone's got to have language for this. But that's definitely something that I don't talk too, too much about. Because again, honestly, I don't even have like, what terminology should I put into Google yeah. to find out more? So I'm stunned right now, because um, I don't know if I've ever been a part of a conversation where this has come up. So um, I do hope that maybe there's somebody in Someone! watching either today or maybe down the road, the replay will help us bridge that gap in knowledge in terms yeah. of if there is language out there to talk about what you have described. I know yeah. that I'm not familiar with it. Um, so it's really interesting. So as I hear you talk about your story and all the different ways you show up mm-hmm. and all the different mm-hmm. intersecting identities, I mean, I don't know if I have been in conversation with someone where there's been that many intersecting uh, identities. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm so looking forward to this conversation. And I believe that it gives us a chance to really expand our knowledge when we mm-hmm. talk about difference, when we talk about intersectionality, when we talk about um, really embracing the totality of all that a person is and stop mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. box them into certain containers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hoping that a little bit more of that will, will come out in our conversation today. So um, Rahime, I would love for you to talk a little bit about your, your start, your career, how you journeyed into this work of DEI, and very specifically, why was it important to you as a Muslim American woman to be in this space? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. So as I mentioned, so I got started within DEI work in general through my master's degree in intercultural communication. And that for me was very much sparked by being multi-ethnic. Uh, I went my whole life having very different messaging being taught to me, different ways of orienting myself to the world and what like goals I should have and so on. Um, I actually wasn't raised as a practicing Muslim. I chose to become a practicing Muslim at around age 19 or 20 years old. So even, you know, before growing up, like that's a whole other complicated story. I was wearing hijab, which, you know, is the religious headscarf that some Muslim women wear, uh, which you see me wearing, uh, which is why I put in my, you know, bio that I'm a visibly identifiable Muslim, because that is a very different lived experience. I do want to be very, very clear, very upfront at the beginning that that does not mean that I'm a better Muslim than Muslim women or anyone Mm. else who doesn't wear a hijab, that I'm more spiritual and I am a more, no, not at all, not at all. It's just that by walking through the world with something that very clearly identifies you as othered in, you know, mainstream United States, Western context, that that is a very distinct experience, if you will, (laughs) as you might imagine, right? Um, So just noting that and mentioning it as like, I have been wearing hijab since I was 11 years old. Um, Ironically, I first put my hijab on the uh, like looking back, I was nine years old when 9-11 happened. I put Mm -hmm. on my hijab presumably like a month or so before 9-11 just looking at the timelines Mm. backwards I don't actually remember Mm. it like from being that age um and so I ended up taking it off for an additional year and then when I went into middle school um at age 11 I put it on full time but just all of that around security and my parents being very scared for like this little girl walking around um and I you know didn't have that 
I was privileged enough to have this sense of like safety around most people. Uh, so they were very worried about like my safety in general. So we waited and my family advised me as an 11 year old <laughs> to wait until age 11. So all of that getting to your point that, you know, growing up as someone who's multi-ethnic and, you know, intercultural communication is not something that is widely known, even amongst professional spaces. It's still not a very like well-known field. But I took my first intercultural communications class in my bachelor's level, and it just blew my <laughs> mind, especially around the differences between direct and indirect communication. Anyone who's familiar with Iranian or Persian culture knows that uh, Iranians are very indirect communicators. And that is something that came up a lot, a lot, a lot in my relationship with my father and still does very much today. However, of course, now that I've learned so much about like reading intercultural or reading uh, indirect communication, I am much better and more adept at like understanding what he's saying and what he means by like little gestures and nonverbal things versus like being raised primarily by my white mother that she was very much a direct communicator and that's how I was socialized to be, right? So I took my first intercultural communication class in my bachelor's, blew my mind, answered so many questions around like confusion and anyone who's mixed in any way, whether you identify as like biracial, multiracial, multiethnic, mixed in whatever way, like anyone who's had that background knows it's like a very confusing, very ambiguous, very like tense kind of space to uh exist in and so this was like the first taste of me really getting answers to something that I didn't even know I was carrying in me and so I went and did my master's right away I don't necessarily just as a side note I don't necessarily recommend that to other people uh, but I did do that and it is what it is so I went did my um master's in intercultural I started going to professional conferences at that time and that's where I heard about the diversity equity inclusion field which I love because of the look at power and privilege and systems of marginalization and domination and power that exist whereas in you know this was like 2015 20 to 2017 you know the pre 2020 era but is where I'm going with this right. um you know the intercultural communication field was very much like if you were a German person going to a Chinese person's home, what sort of hosting gift should you bring to, you know, show respect to your guest in their culture? Yeah. If you have a white American woman going to Saudi Arabia for business, how should she conduct herself so that she can build rapport given like the different cultural differences and stuff like that? So there's not to say in any way that I mean any disrespect to that field or anyone who does do that kind of work. That's just not where my heart and, you know, where I want to dedicate my work to, but bringing in the DEI lens was being able to look at like the systems of power and privilege and marginalization, as I mentioned, uh, which are very much like inexistent. I really appreciate being able to name those specifically and not just pretend like, oh, we're just like yeah. all equally cultural beings, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Bringing into the DEI space specifically then, of course, like as a Muslim American, I, again, I mentioned I've been wearing hijab since I was 11 years old. I, you know, I was nine years old when 9-11 happened. Thankfully, I was because I was so young and I am incredibly privileged for many different reasons that I wasn't aware of some of the hardships that a lot of people who were adult at that time went through, like Muslim Americans or people who were perceived to be Muslim. So that's something that's important to know about Islamophobia, which I try and bring into my work and why I mentioned in my work doing religious inclusion work and not just Muslim inclusion work, because there are so many other marginalized religious identities that are just thrown under the bus in so many different ways in our societies. And so it, you know, in the post 9-11 world, there were many people who were very angry and very reactionary to, you know, latching out at innocent people in their environments. And so a lot of the times people who weren't actually Muslim, uh, not that Muslims deserved it or should have been treated that way either, but people looked at like quote unquote brown people and assumed that they were Muslim. Uh, so there are a lot of Arabs who are Christian who had to deal with this sort of, um, you know, retaliatory behavior. There are a lot of Hindus or Sikhs who were uh, in, who were treated in very horrible ways. In fact, the first person after, uh, the first person who was murdered in retaliation for 9-11 was a Sikh man right? Not even mm -hmm. a natural Muslim, right? So it's like, all of this is very, um, you know, ambiguous, and it's mm -hmm. not 
like, oh, I'm going to check your identities before I like hate crime you, right? Yeah, um, so right. as a Muslim American, as someone who has an immigrant father, so like seeing the experiences that my dad has gone through, I don't hear his accent, honestly, like I literally don't even hear him having an accent, but I have been told by other people that he does speak with an accent um, and the things that he's had to experience as an Iranian in the United States, as we are all aware of those these countries are not friends with each other. Um, and, you know, being someone who is Muslim, who I'm also part of a sect of Islam that is a minority even within Muslims. So even that is another layer that I don't necessarily bring up very often because even like other Muslims from majority sects aren't overly kind sometimes and sometimes like outright yeah. rude, if, yeah. let's say that, and so on. So there's just so many different things, yeah. like you said, so many different identities that bring to this work and why I want to push for a more equitable, inclusive, and just world for everyone. Thank you. Thank you so very much. You, there was so much to unpack in what you just shared, and, and I appreciate uh, the, the openness and the vulnerability in sharing with this community, especially mm. around some of those elements that you have um, alluded to that you don't talk about as mm. often. I, I do feel privileged that you are um, you know, trusting the space with that information. And a couple of things I just want to comment on based upon um, what you just shared. The first is, yes, conversations like this is so important for broadening our, our worldview of dimensions of diversity. Um, that, mm. is, that is very evident to me in this conversation. And what I also appreciate about specifically how you show up to this work is that you acknowledge that and it finds its way but that also you are very much um, based upon how you describe your work, um, you are akin to really leaning into those opportunities where the power and the privilege conversations are really trying to drive towards um, better outcomes from those mm. who are most marginalized. Mm. And I appreciate that. I think that's so critically important. Um, what I'm also taking away is that, um, you know, you shared a little bit about the reason that you wear the hijab and then you said that, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of other Muslims who do mm. not wear it. And mm -hmm. and I think for those who are showing up to this conversation, I don't want to assume that there's a great deal of, of knowledge around mm -hmm. um, the Muslim religion. So I would imagine that some people were probably curious about why there are some who wear, why there are some that yeah. do not. So I appreciate you providing a little bit of insight into that. And then the other thing that comes up for me is all of the different ways that diversity shows up that we don't speak about as often. Like I loved how mm. you gave us a little bit of your lived experience about um, being in a house where, you know, the direct communication versus the indirect communication is something mm. that you experienced, you know, on a daily basis and how yeah. navigating that was was something that you had to, um, you know, grow into, right? And to appreciate. So I, I would love for you to spend just a little bit of time um, taking us through what was that experience like? Because it sounds like it wasn't until your studies that you really mm. realized, okay, this is what's happening here. Now I have some language around it, but yeah. um, I can imagine that that could have been a little, a, a little <laughs> difficult. What are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, so, no, yeah, definitely. Lightness a little bit there. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, I did not really spend a lot of time around, or I didn't spend really any time around Iranian slash Persian culture growing up. I really was socialized 99.999% of the way by my white American parent. Uh, mm -hmm. And so getting to know Persian culture in my college years was one, I was living with my dad, uh, just the two of us when I was in college. So we were spending a lot more time together and he was working from home at that point. Uh, so we were spending a lot more direct time together in that way. And also as someone, you know, by then I had chosen to be a practicing Muslim. And so by joining the Muslim community as an active member, I was surrounded by a lot of Iranians there. So really getting to know the culture in that way. And then at the same time, learning intercultural communication and all these different like factors of culture, again, also like conflict manage or conflict, not um, different ways of managing conflict, communicating mm -hmm. conflict, showing respect, uh, direct versus indirect communication, time differences around orientations around time, and on and on and on, right. And so the idea being is that like, before this kind of transformation in my education, 
I would have conversations with my dad in particular, where we would go in kind of this circular logic where if we had, why well, I mentioned conflict, <laughs> if, you know, we had a disagreement, uh, my dad would, you know, finally express to me that he was upset with me about something and me now being told about it, it was like, oh, well, this has been building clearly for a long time. If something had been wrong, why didn't you just tell me? And him coming back with like, no, you should have just known. And then this just continual circle. So the direct speaker being like, oh, well, why didn't you just directly tell me explicitly that there was something wrong? And then we could have talked about it. And then the indirect communicator being like, no, I, you should have known, right? Because <laughs> Now, like learning intercultural communication, like for itself, but then also getting to know Persian culture, the idea being is not, and I just want to say for anyone who is around indirect communicators, I know as a direct communicator themselves, I know a lot of the times we can take indirect communication as like passive aggressive mm -hmm. or, you know, oh, you're just not mature. You can't set boundaries. You can't say what you really mean and all of that. And I would encourage you to try and show a little bit more grace for like the very distinct cultural differences that exist um, in indirect communication cultures. The idea is it's not that they are not communicating. It again is that it is indirect, right? So you have to be paying attention to nonverbal cues, facial expressions. What are they making jokes about? Is it like, does it make yeah. sense that they were like joking about that in like a real joking sense? Or is it like, oh, hmm, that's an actual indication that something is wrong or something is upsetting them. And the idea for them is that to not be upfront and direct with confronting you with something that they're upset about, it's giving you an invitation to correct whatever it is or have like some sort of indirect communication yeah. dialogue around what is wrong versus having like a direct conflict, which for them is not something like that. Something has to be like very, 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 very deadly, seriously wrong for you to have that kind of like direct fight, if you will. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the idea of being is like getting to know that is something that has led me so much to understanding myself, understanding my family's dynamic um, and being able to move forward with having an understanding in the DEI work that I do that all of us are socialized as children by people and societies and groups of people that we did not actively choose, right? None of us, none of us, no matter what our different marginalized right, or right. privileged identities, none of us as five-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds were sitting there being like, hmm, that's an interesting thing, mom, for you to say about this other group that we don't belong to. Can you please cite your sources on where you got that information? None of us are going to our yeah. kindergarten class and telling our teacher or teacher's aide or whoever, the principal being like, hmm, why is it that you are teaching us these things and not framing lessons in this? No, like five-year-olds are literally not capable of that, right? And all of yeah. us are like that. So all of us are going to be socialized in this way, but as adults now, and you know, I work only with adults, I don't do anything with minors, uh, just because I don't have the expertise. I've never been a caretaker for, you know, minors. And then you have to get into the whole legality of working with minors. So I just steer clear of all of that. So much respect to the people who work with, you know, children and teenagers, like, oh my gosh, like, I, oh, wow. Um, but <laughs> the idea, and for parents, oh my gosh, my, yeah. my heart and soul goes yeah. out to you. Uh, but the idea being is that, you know, now as adults, that we are able, hopefully, to have the maturity to recognize that while we, yes, didn't choose how we were socialized growing up, and our mix of privilege and, you know, marginalized identities that we as adults can unlearn the things that are not constructive. We can admit that some of the things that we learned were not constructive, that we're yeah. not the best things that we now have information that are presented to us that we could be better, right? When you know better, you can do better. Yeah. Now you know better. Okay. Know better, do better. I love that. I want to jump in here because there's so much yeah, yeah, I want yeah. to be able to get into with our limited time. And so, sure. um, you know, what you're amplifying is the importance of um, intercultural learning, um, intercultural communications. And that's not something that just organically happens. We have to mm. make sure that we are forcing opportunities for that to happen. And when I think about globalization, um, that's even more necessary. Mm. So mm. You, you really are amplifying that today, and I'm grateful for it. So I want to talk about some of the ways in which you help advise organizational leaders or organizations around um, really ensuring that religion and spirituality is something that becomes a part of the, the broad DEI mm -hmm. conversation. So what have you found to be some of the best practices to help organizations to understand the importance of that? So I primarily work with organizations that are already on board with the idea that DEI 
is, you know, a value add, that diversity is a positive, it's not a quota to match that we want to be inclusive, because it is the right thing to do. And yes, it's going to drive innovation and business outcomes, and so on and so forth. Our employees, our staff, our managers, our execs, our customers, clients, community members, so on and so forth, everyone who engages with our organization, university, and so on deserves to be treated equitably, whether that is the removal of barriers that exist simply from them existing as they are, or by providing them resources and accommodations so that they are able to do so, right? Um, so <laughs> the idea being is that the general is that the general idea is that the people that I'm engaging with are already on board with the idea that diversity, equity, inclusion is valuable and good and something that they want to work towards, right? I just say that because it's going, you need to take a very different approach if you are trying to convince an organization or convince leadership why diverse groups of people are deserving of being in their organization and treated with respect and dignity. Like that's a completely different conversation. Right. Uh, and so I just clarify that, you know, I'm engaging with people and I try very intentionally to make sure that I am engaging with people who are already like cemented in, yes, we agree wow. with, with these values. Amazing. Awesome. So the idea being is that we've already appreciated that the diversity of human beings is like a, an amazing, beautiful part of the tapestry of humanity. Amazing. Faith and religious identity is a huge part of the vast majority of people's identities. And I know for some people, they don't necessarily resonate with like the concept of religion. Uh, and I totally appreciate that. Mm -hmm, you can also mm -hmm. label, you can also insert spirituality in here, yeah. right? The idea being is that they have this spiritual, religious, faith-oriented part of themselves that very much does show up. So, and depending on the person, very much like every moment of their day. Sometimes it's, you know, once a week that they go to religious services. But generally, if this is something that's a core part of who you are, you are thinking about it on a regular basis. It is showing up even when you do go to work. We hopefully have long debunked the like check your identities or check your, you know, stuff at the door and just come into work, whether virtually or in person, as like a blank slate. There's literally no such thing as a blank slate. No one ever does that. And in fact, that sort of reasoning is actually pushing yeah. people with a lot of marginalized identities to tamp down on literally who they are just from existing and is privileging very seriously the people who have already dominant identity groups because they are the norm they are the unspoken norm right and mm -hmm. so for people from with different races people with different you know religious expressions especially for those of us who are visibly identifiable and again i don't just include muslim women who wear hijab it can also be sick people yeah. who wear turbans there are also jews who wear i believe it's called a kippah there are so many other people who will visibly be identifiable from the outside that they are a religious person even though they're not going around talking about religion they're that's just how they walk through the world and in order to be able to fully respect and show that we care about these individuals and provide them equitable access and be inclusive i like to compare it to colorblindness right a lot of conversations in the DEI space have gone over like race and racism as we absolutely should. And those conversations absolutely need to continue. However, something that I like to compare it with is like, generally it is understood that colorblindness is not a positive. It's actually a negative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the idea being is that, like, oh, I don't even see you. <laughs> like, why do you think yeah. that I don't want to be seen as who I am? My race or other parts of my identity are very important right. to me. I'm proud of who I am. I don't see it as a negative. You are implying that you see it as a negative because you just like don't acknowledge it. And also just like as an aside, we've done studies that show that people like they do notice race, like they do notice yeah. other things about, and especially yeah. like for me as a Muslim woman wearing hijab, like you're going to pretend that while looking me in the face that you don't see this giant piece of fabric. That. And I, I yeah, like, you're just going to ignore it. I love that parallel, Rahime. I love that because I think that we have, um, many of us have been exposed mm. to the conversations around color blindness. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, Melanie Hobson does this great TED talk about color, be color brave, not color blind. Mm. And when you relate that to religion, mm. um, people's faith is deeply embedded in who they are and how they show up. So your mm. point is valid. I don't yeah. want you to erase that for me. And I think that's a great message to amplify. So, so appreciate you bringing that. I want you to give us the top two to three yeah. 
equitable policies that you feel like are most effective for people of different religion and spirituality? And again, you mentioned before that you don't just do this work to amplify the needs and the rights of, of Muslim women, but you also mm-hmm. do it to recognize Sikh and Jewish and other religions. And mm-hmm. so when you go into organizations, what are maybe those top two to three very succinctly best practices from an equitability perspective that you say you need to make sure this is part of how you operate as an organization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you. I appreciate you bringing me back to the policy and like leadership aspect of things. So mm-hmm. the one thing is that for sure, you need to have religious identity, religious identity-based discrimination, harassment, microaggressions, mm-hmm. all the things included in your HR policies around discrimination, harassment, yep. problems at work in general. Because yep. if you don't name it explicitly, then people are going to assume because of the culture that we have in the West and in the United States, I'm born and raised in the United States, so that's very much my context, but in the West in general, that it's not polite to talk about religion, that, oh, religion and politics and like, you know, things like that, oh, those aren't polite things to be talking about. Again, however, for for those of us who are visibly identifiable or need to ask for accommodations or want to be seen as our full authentic selves and our religious identity, our faith, our spirituality is a huge part of that, then that needs to be acknowledged, right? So part of that is making sure that we are protecting people from harassment, discrimination, indirect in, uh, or direct, right? There are yeah. many instances with people not being hired or not being coached within the organization, not being seen as promotable, not being seen as, oh, not leadership quality, management quality, yep. or whatever, 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 right? Or So be explicit against discrimination in yes. your policies, for yes. sure. Number one, okay? That's awesome. Number one. And then I want to see trainings for managers, people who are directly engaging Mm. with people of different religious identity, where they have training around religious inclusion, how to create a psychologically safe environment for their direct report so that they can come to their manager and express what their accommodation needs are, whether it's like something, you know, not like, like neutral, if you will, like nothing wrong has happened, but say like Ramadan has just passed fairly recently and a Muslim person wants to take the holiday at the end of Ramadan, Eid al-Fitr off, then they're able to have a conversation with their manager instead of what has been happening forever and ever and ever. And unfortunately still very much happening today where even if they have taken the time to accrue PTO, they're using their PTO, they're following all the policies around asking for time off and yet still they're not being like allowed to use their own PTO for time off, right? If someone who doesn't want to attend an event where alcohol is being consumed because of religious considerations, then it is not that they're not a team player. It's not that they're not committed to their work. Right. It's not that they don't want to be there as a part of the organization, but this is a very serious part of their faith and how they live their values. And that isn't also a um, reflection on other people's choices, not at all. So making sure that, so as you said, policies so that when things do happen, unfortunately, we know that it's not an if, it's really a when. So you have to be able to have that like bare minimum foundation safety net that when things do happen, you do have policies to refer back to about what is and is not okay, what is going to be done, who they should report it to, how is it going to be followed up with, and so on and so forth, right? I just would say as a note that there does need to be a level of trust building, whether HR or whoever in the organization Mm. does an investigation and whether they deem something did in fact happen or not from an organizational standpoint, managers and leadership should know that trust is still very much going to be broken with that individual or the people who are directly involved and also people in the organization in general. And they should still very much engage in trust, maintaining and rebuilding activities, messaging, what have you, right? Um, Even if, again, it's not ruled officially as like a case of discrimination or harassment. Um, And then the other thing is that managers should be given religious inclusion training so that they are able to shift their perspective from, again, being socialized in the world that we are in, where religion is not polite to talk about, it's something that we avoid. And the idea of like a secular environment being seen as neutral, when in fact that isn't neutral. Secular is one version of looking at the world walking through the world and that is totally legitimate and fine, but that is not objective, right? There's a lot of us who don't walk through the world in a secular manner. And if we use secularism as like the default as the neutral, then that means all of us 
are then being pushed down, right? So making sure that managers have that training so that they are able to move from this like, oh, we're just going to ignore that religion exists to the idea of like, how do we talk about it within boundaries, right? Because there are very, it is a tense topic. I'm not going to pretend that it isn't. It is a very tense topic. And so it is very easy to say, oh, let's just ignore it and hope it goes away yeah. and it just doesn't come up. So making sure that we're saying, okay, how do we acknowledge it? None of, like, for instance, some of the boundaries need to include that we absolutely have to respect people who have experienced religious trauma. Someone, whether they're atheist, whether they're agnostic, aside from like whether they experience religious trauma, atheists, not uh, agnostics, people who are not religious, people who don't identify with any re religious practice or spirituality should be respected and just as much as someone with a religious practice. And also for those, whether they identify with a religion or not, who have experienced religious trauma should never be put in a place where they are now being re-triggered, especially at work of all places, uh, where they yeah. should like, also be treated with dignity, all should be should be treated with respect, should be re-triggered because now, like in order to be inclusive of this religious community that they now then have to be like pushed down. And then at the same time, making sure that we're not swinging too far to the other side of the spectrum where people feel emboldened to now start like openly proselytizing in their workplace, right? Like bringing religious literature about why their religion is the correct one and why people should convert. And like, that's, whoa, that's way too far as well. And so a lot of people, when we talk about religious inclusion, Muslim inclusion within the workplace, one of the pushbacks is that people are really worried that, oh, this is just allowing people to come in and start, you know, trying to convert people and talk about like, oh, my religion is superior and on and on and on. And that absolutely is a hard no as well. Okay. So how would you, that this is so good. Um, oh, I'm so good. So I want to make sure I'm not missing this. So the first one was explicit policy, of course, against discrimination, harassment based on religion. Mm. Number two, succinctly was more about the religious inclusion training for managers. And you yeah. talked about trust being really important there. You also talked about um, not just seeing, um, you know, secular as the default and as the mm -hmm. neutral, but making sure we're thinking about all the different scenarios. And then how would you succinctly kind of just, you know, state what that last one was? I want to make sure we don't miss it because I'm sharing it into the chat as well for this community. Oh, thank you. Um, setting boundaries for success. Setting boundaries for yeah. success. I love that. Like this um, side, there's a spectrum. Sorry, everyone who can't see me on camera. I'm using my <laughs> hands. So if we have a whole spectrum on a, like, I'm sorry, it's a linear spectrum. You have too far side on the left, too far side on the right. And this is not yeah. a political conversation. I'm just using this like left and right as directions. Okay, don't read into it. But yeah. the idea being is like, there's definitely going too far on one end and there's definitely going too far on the other end. And too far on one end would be, again, like hyper uh, secularism, which I fully admit I am biased. If anyone's in France listening to this, I'm sorry. But like the French government is very much an example, especially as a Muslim woman wearing hijab. <laughs> I'm I am 120% biased and like okay um that the French government is very much a good example of like hyper sexual um secularism and you know toxic secularism and all of that like oh by default we're just going to rip apart any ideas of like showing up as religious but then by default it is specifically uh marginalizing and oppressing specific groups right more than others mm -hmm. right so that's very unfair that's unjust that's going too far in one direction and then the other direction right is that people are feeling emboldened whether any community right and i say this to mean that um i very much try and pull in the idea that in the united states and in the west we have to look at who are the most privileged identities also on a spectrum and least privileged identities um, on, we're talking about religious identity. And so Christians in the United States and in the West in general are the most privileged religious identity. And so this is not going to be a conversation where Christians feel emboldened to then bring religious literature to their workplaces to try and convert people. But However, even though in the West we see that happen a lot because, again, they are the majority, but also there are other people from other religious communities, including, yes, my own community, that can do this in a problematic way. And I also call out people from my own community and say, no, this is not an opportunity for you <laughs> as a Muslim, me telling you, another Muslim, that you can't come and bring religious literature for the purposes of trying to like spread Islam to other people. This is not appropriate. There are other uh context where if people consent to having those conversations then great if you like as adults are having consenting conversations outside of work then right. like do as you wish but that is not for this work and in this context 
Yeah, no, I so appreciate that. And I think that's a big question for a lot of people in a workplace environment. You know, when is it appropriate? When is it not? This is mm. really important to me. So I do want to have this conversation. I want to mm. be authentic to who mm. I am. And I feel like I'm not being authentic if I don't allow those conversations to naturally just flow. And so it's so good to have these conversations because mm. it allows us to be much more mindful mm. about how we're showing up. And what I also love that you brought to the conversation, you were talking about the education factor and how um, we need to, when we're setting those boundaries, we need to be aware of the potential triggers that mm. could occur for certain mm. people of different religious backgrounds. And when I think about um, the, the race conversation, that is also a big, you know, big topic. People say, do not necessarily leave it up to the black, brown people in the organization to educate you on some of the systems of oppression that they experience day in and day out. You do some of that legwork. Don't, yeah. you know, we traumatize them by having to um, educate you as well. And so again, there's another parallel that's being brought to this conversation mm -hmm. when we think about religion um, in general. So we are getting close to being oh. at the top of the hour. And I want to make sure that we can get um, in maybe a couple questions from our audience. And so if you're here today and you have questions from Rahime, I would invite you to either um, use the raise hand feature if you are part of our, our podcast community, and I will um, call on you to um, unmute yourself and to share, and we'll add you to the spotlight. Or again, if you just want your question to be presented on your behalf, you can place it into the chat, and we will make sure that that finds its way into the time that we have remaining. If you're joining us LinkedIn Live and we haven't left you out, you can place your question into the comments and the team is watching that and we'll bring those um, questions and comments over so that we can make sure it's part of our dialogue here today. So while you're thinking about your questions, I'm going to go to the next one just to give you a little bit of time to decide mm. if there's something, some curiosities that are coming up for you. Um, but here's a question that I want to ask you about. Um, how has being a younger millennial shaped mm -hmm. your worldview? And I guess a follow-up to that would be, are your views different from your parents or maybe older family yeah. members? How are you kind of bridging that gap? Because I can imagine that's a little tricky to navigate. We're exactly the same. What? We're carbon copies. We have all the same opinions. All. like all, 100% all across the board. Right? 100%. 120%. We agree on everything. Everything. Okay, so now real talk. How do you really navigate that? <laughs> um, so I, like, I genuinely believe in and want to work towards a world where there is intergenerational allyship, just like that there is allyship. Hopefully, that is being worked towards across racial identities, religious identities, gender identity, sexual orientation identities, on and on and on and on. Right. And so, in the same way, I do really believe that at the foundation having different generations, they came of age and learned about the world and then went through different historical events. Technology was different at different times. Institutional knowledge, you know, ancestor knowledge, all of the things, right, is very important. And being able to benefit each other with that, both from elders or people who are older, of older generations, whether they identify as elder or not. I'm not trying to be ageist or anyone who is like you get understand people who are an older generation um they have so much to be able to benefit younger generations and also uh, especially as a millennial there are so many instances where older generations um have a lot of arrogance or criticism that i again am biased but very much feel is unjust to mm -hmm. the generations mm -hmm. that they don't understand how we came about, right? As a millennial, I very much adore and love Gen Z. Uh, and that is something that I really love seeing like how much Gen Z is coming to the fore of conversations around DEI, around workplace mm -hmm. norms and so on. Right. Uh, giving their managers a hard time around setting they boundaries. Well I love it. It's amazing. I'm sitting on my Right? And so the idea being is that we should be working towards a world where there is intergenerational allyship. However, we have to acknowledge that there are disparities in power and privilege around wow. generations, just like other identities, right? We have to be looking at when you are critiquing, in this case, a generational difference, being just in how we are assessing, right? Like, oh, millennials are killing the avocado industry or the housing industry, the diamond industry, the car industry, like literally everything. <laughs> right. Um, and being able to look at it from a perspective that we're looking at how people came of age and how that molded their 
perception on life and how they are making decisions and not being like, oh, people who are young are just inherently evil or bad or lazy or whatever. Yeah. And it's really interesting looking at like older times, like historical data, like newspapers back in the day where people from like the silent generation, for instance, were uh, being critiqued by the older generation before them about how lazy and, you know, like they were. Right. So this is like a longstanding tradition that like, let's be cycle breakers here, people. Yeah. 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 I love the way Gen Z um, and, you know, some millennials are showing up to this work right now. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that they, we can learn a lot from them and the perspective that they have. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. So we do have a question from an audience member, and this question is coming from Takia, one of our client partners at Faraday. Thank you so much for being here. Takia, and her question is, race, ethnicity, and religion is so nuanced. How do you identify people within your organization who do want to share their stories without the risk of re-traumatizing someone? Um, great question. What would you say to that, Rahim? Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah, so the idea for me is that we have to be very clear that someone visually looking a certain way, whether that is race, ethnicity, or religious identity, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are able to identify who they actually are, right? And that's actually, yeah. I really appreciate this question because I had wanted to mention this earlier and I missed the chance, is that um, with religious identity, you can't look at someone from the outside and be like, oh, this person is part of this religious community, right? Even someone right. like me wearing a hijab or head covering or veiling, whatever you want to call it, the way mm -hmm. I am, there are so many people now I've met, ironically, on TikTok, there's a whole Orthodox Christian women community mm -hmm. on TikTok that I have been able to meet and interact with on that platform that get mistaken for Muslim women all the time because they cover their hair and their neck and their ears just like Muslim women do in very similar styles. And so they get assumed to be Muslim and they actually aren't Muslim. They're Orthodox Christians, right? And Same. so many other ways. Yeah. Like there are so many people who are Christian who don't necessarily look Christian on the outside, whatever that means, right? They're not wearing a cross necklace to be able to identify themselves. There are so many Muslims. Muslims themselves are from every race, every ethnicity, looking a certain way, behaving a certain way. There is an estimated 1.8 billion Muslims around the world. So all of that is to say to your question um, is that you can't look at someone on the outside, no matter what they look like, how they dress, how they act or anything and say, oh, I know that this person is from this community and wow. therefore we're going to invite them to speak or invite them to share their experiences on certain things or whatever right and so the idea and especially in like a religious context in a lot of spaces it is actually illegal to ask or solicit information around someone's religious identity and of course i don't want to get any of my clients uh sued so the idea being is that you've created a psychologically safe environment again while going back to the idea of having strong policies in your HR manual and that your managers are educated in them and it's emphasized to employees that these really are going to be policies that are stuck up with and uh, stuck to and executed when called for around religious discrimination and harassment and so on. And then at the same time, managers are being educated on religious inclusion so that they're actually competent and able to have these conversations yeah. and they're not just so scared of having these conversations because it's a muscle that they've never had to work ever. Uh, and so the idea being is that um, they are able to set a psychologically safe environment. The organization at all levels has been able to communicate very strongly and maintain over and over and over again to prove and build that trust that it is a safe space for someone of different re religious identities. But then, of course, the commenter also asked about ethnicity and racial identities that they can bring up their needs. And if they have something that they would like to share, if there's a holiday or cultural month or something like that, the organization can put a call out in whatever open channels that exist in your organization and say, hey, we are inviting people to opt in, right? And then because mm -hmm. there's psychological safety to stick your neck out and be like, oh, I yes. actually would love to share, then they know, the employee knows that they're not risking their livelihood, their healthcare in the United States setting by talking about something that they really don't have to talk about if they really are putting their employment on the line. And at the same time, now the organization is benefiting from setting up a psychologically safe environment because their employees trust them, they trust their employees, and it's all amazing and everyone benefits. 
struggling. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to that trust factor that I know that you were amplifying um, just a moment ago. So, but for people to kind of summarize, for people to feel free mm. and safe to disclose and volunteer information about themselves, whether it's, you know, related to their religious beliefs or background or um, to their sexual orientation, we can apply yeah. this again across so many different yes. dimensions. It has to be a safe environment um, where people feel like there's not going to be repercussions mm. um, for disclosing that information. So that's real, that's really important. And I will um, just say, do you mind if I just say one more thing? Yeah, sure. So the idea being is that there are a lot of conversations and critiques. There's like conversations within DEI spaces between practitioners and also many people outside of DEI space who have engaged with DEI trainings or seen consultants mm -hmm. do their mm -hmm. work and all of that. There's a lot of conversations and critique around performative DEI, which are 120% valid. And so the idea being is that I want organizations who are listening to these kinds of materials, who engage with trainers, engage with DEI, you know, education, what have you, that even if you learn the language of DEI, your employees also have been learning the language of DEI mm -hmm. when if sure. they don't work DEI they know when you are just saying the right words and when you are actually putting your money where your mouth is, where you're actually walking the talk, all of those things, right? So don't think that just because you listen to this podcast, for instance, and we are talking around like religious inclusion and how to set up a psychologically safe environment, blah, blah, blah. You can't just have a manager say, hey, we want to create a psychologically safe environment. And literally that's it. Like, oh, we believe you. No, there's such a lack of trust Amongst so many direct reports with their managers, employees with their, you know, organizations, leadership, and on and on and on. Yeah. And so you can't just say, we believe in DEI. We have a black person on our hiring website. We have a Muslim woman in hijab on our pamphlets. Look, we're done. We like, we what what more could you want? No, you have to prove it that you actually are going to create a safe place for people to stick out their necks. Because if they don't feel that safety, why on earth would they put their livelihood, their family's livelihood, their rent, their way of right. feeding their families? Why would they put that out? And again, if you really do believe, as I started, if you are bought into the values of DEI, then you know that your business and your organization, your university, your community benefits so much from having your employees from different diverse backgrounds and different identities contributing for innovation standpoint and being more inclusive and so on. Absolutely. That is a great note to end on. It's not just, it's just rhetoric, right? And performative. If we're just saying it and speaking it and socializing it, we yeah. have to make sure that there's some type of evidentiary actions to support that. Yeah, how are you backing that up? And so I, I love that. Great message to end on. I'm so grateful. This has been an hour that probably could have gone two hours. <laughs> so you. really appreciate you being here today. Um, thank you for all of those who have joined us for this conversation. We have shared all of your information into the chat so that for those who would love to be able to connect with you, they can do so. And I hope that you will take advantage of that. So we um, hope you enjoy your weekend. Have a safe weekend. And we look forward to seeing you back for Intentional Conversations next week. So join us again. Thanks very much. Take care.